Well, I'm Lee Goldberg. I've written a couple books, one of which is The Chase, which I wrote with uh, this up-and-coming young author named Janet Ivanovich. I hope someday she'll be able to go out on her own and make a name for herself. <laughs> I'm tired of carrying her. So actually, how did you get hooked up with Janet? Actually, I've known Janet. Uh, are you familiar with Janet Ivanovich? I know the name. Okay, Janet Ivanovich. I've read your books. Janet Ivanovich <laughs> is one of the biggest selling authors on earth. I'm not saying that as an exaggeration. She is one of the biggest selling authors on earth. But when I knew her for the first time, when I first met her, she wasn't. We honestly don't remember how we first met. We okay. assume it was at a book signing or something for One for the Money, her first Stephanie Plum. But it was very, very early in, in that part of her career. She'd already been writing mis uh, romance novels under a pseudonym and, and under her own name as well, but didn't really break through until her first Stephanie Plum book. And we just became fast friends. And whenever she came to LA, we would get together and have dinner. Or, and we'd talk on the phone a couple times a year for hours. and. Just we're, we're great friends, and um, she came to LA for one of her business meetings. We got together, and we were having one of our three-hour dinners, talking about you know books we like to read that aren't being written anymore, TV shows we like that aren't being done anymore, like It Takes a Thief and Remington Steel, and why don't they make movies like The Thomas Crown Affair? And, and she also was asking me how I work with collaborators. I do a lot of work in TV, and we hire writers to write episodes. And I've also written these 15 monk novels, which are based on a TV series I didn't create. I, I write them, I wrote them with, uh, with uh, the approval of Andy Breckman, who created Monk. But she was very interested in the whole collaborative process because she hadn't had a lot of luck with the collaborators she worked with. And there was a silence at dinner, the kind you have a comfortable silence when you're eating with friends and family. And, and she looked up at me after a moment and said, why haven't we ever written a book together? I said, we never asked. <laughs> and she said, why don't we write the book we're talking about now? The kind that isn't done that we wish we could read. And so we talked about it some more. And then I went home and I wrote it up in an email. And I sent it to her. And I said, you're probably going to wake up in the morning and think, oh, my God, what have I done? <laughs> you know, like a one-night stand, except a creative one-night stand. Um, but you know, if you're still interested, here's what we talked about. Yes, I am interested. We should do it. So I flushed it out into a longer uh, pitch, like a page or two, and she added her thoughts, and I fleshed it out some more, and she sent it to her publisher, and I think 24 hours later, we had a four-book deal. And I think a little bit longer than six months after that dinner, we debuted at number two on the New York Times bestseller list. If it wasn't for Dan freaking Brown, we would have been number one. <laughs> he had to go with his latest book that week. Um, and we, we've done five books together. The It's, it's, the sec, it's about a... Um, an international thief and the FBI agent is chasing him, but in fact um, they're working together it's to bring down crooks that the FBI can't, can't get on their own. It's a little more complicated than that, but um, they're international thrillers that take place all over the world. And I travel to all the places I write about, whether it's Hong Kong or Macau or Spain or France. So for the second book, I thought it'd be really fun if they went to Singapore and they went to Nashville and they went to Washington, D.C. And, and the big finale would be at this exotic locale that few people have ever been to because it's so remote and so bizarre and so mysterious. I said it here in Owensboro. <laughs> <laughs> the big finale of this international thriller is right here. And I had them break into the fire station. I have them staying at a very exotic locale. You know, these books are all about wish fulfillment, fantasy fulfillment. So I had my hero stay at the Ramada Inn down here <laughs> on the freeway. But not just any room. They stayed in the Paris suite, you know, the high end. 
And I have the, the big finale in Hawesville. And so that was great fun. It was my way of kind of uh, thanking Owensboro for all the kindness they've shown me the last, uh, what, seven, eight years. I came going here. On 10, going on 10. I was young and impressionable when I came here and <laughs> never used profanity until I met Roxy Wood at River Park Center. <laughs> uh. <clears throat> I came here for the International Mystery Writers Festival and they've had some big. Gene Hackman was here and Mary Higgins Clark and Sue Grafton, you know, a lot of big names. And uh, just fell in love with the place. And I ended up doing uh, two short films, wrote and directed two short films here in town that uh, were mysteries. and went on to festivals all around the country and won all kinds of awards and acclaim and we're screening those here tonight at, at seven o'clock and a lot of people who starred in it and were involved behind the scenes are going to be there so i, I had a great time in, in owensboro and now i'm going to be kind of a resident assuming our our uh, offers accepted then I'm gonna get on the board of River Park and I'm gonna start shaking things up. We're <laughs> oh, gonna see monster truck rallies right, <laughs> right out here. Do you wanna uh, shoot another movie here? I would love to. I would love to do another short film. The only thing that's prevented me from doing it is time. Um, I would love to do it. I had so much fun. Every time I see those short films, I think, oh God, I gotta do another one. And it's not really a question, I mean, to be honest, it's not a question of. The films in the past were financed by River Park and the universities and local donors and a lot of things were donated. But the budgets of the film were not that high. They were like $5,000. I could afford to do it myself just for fun if I wanted to. And I've been tempted. Believe me, I've been tempted. But it just every time I think about doing it, um, I just get so busy with other things. Like this week's a good example. Although I'm here, I, I delivered a script on Wednesday to the Hallmark Channel for a movie that I'm doing for them. I have a book that's due September 1st that I've just started writing. I was in Memphis to research the book. So I'm, I'm doing work at the same time. I'm under, and I have a publishing company called Rash Books. We published 100 novels in the last three years. And um, how's that going? It's going well, going very well. Um, didn't, was it last night did I show you the covers? Of, I was trying to decide. Uh -oh. I was with somebody. Oh, I was with uh, the nuns, I think. I was trying to decide which um, cover to put on a book. But it's going well. We, we publish, we, we have cut back the number of books we publish per year. But um, I think this year we're publishing a dozen books. You should have them all in your library. They're fantastic. Oh, I'll get right on that. Yeah. Do you like keep a journal, um, all the places that you go and no, I don't. I, whenever I travel, though, I take a ton of pictures because I never know when I might use that place in a book. And I always end up kicking myself if I go somewhere and haven't done that. You know, visit a place and I realize, oh, God, I should have taken pictures because I want to set something there. Um, so, you know, Owensboro, I'd been here enough. I had a lot of pictures and that was easy to write that. Um, but I, I think nothing beats boots on the ground if you are writing about a place. I feel I can always tell when I'm reading a novel and the authors just use Google Earth because <laughs> it's it's missing the little, it's the smell of, of, of something on the street. It's the little detail on the wall that you only see when you're walking down the street. What's interesting now is my wife, she has a French accent. She may walk in here any minute now. Um, She's gonna she, bust you. <laughs> she'll say to me, your next book is going to be in the Amalfi Coast of Italy. It is? Yes, it is. Why is it going to be there? Because I want to go there and you can write anywhere. 
and you know, so I can write off the international travel. And my wife is an employee of my my corporation, so it all is tax deductible. And I keep asking my accountant, "Is this legal?" He says, "Yes." <laughs> if, you're, if you're ever audited, just drop your last seven books on the auditor's desk, they come back in a week, it, yeah. and then you're fine. <laughs> anyway, he goes back to Mr. Monk Goes to Germany, or Mr. Monk is Miserable. I've, I've, and he says, now that I've written so many books with international locales, even if I go somewhere and don't end up writing about it, you don't know when it might. Like, I had a book, um, I've written five books with Jan Ivanovich. There's a sixth one in the series coming out in August that I did not write. I had gone to Australia, started researching the book, and um, our, we couldn't make an agreement with the publisher. So I started writing true fiction, my new novel, instead. By the time we struck a new deal, I wasn't available to write the sixth book. So all that stuff in Australia, I don't know when I'll use it, but I'd gone there in good faith to research a certain story. So, but now my wife pretty much decides. <laughs> I've always wanted to go to Australia. So I don't think it's very exotic. You'll find a way. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, ever since The Chase, where I put the finale in Owensboro, I've decided in every book I'm going to have a small town just to shake things up. It's not always the finale, but if you look at every one of those books I've done with Janet, there is some scene you know, or several chapters in a small town in America just so I could... Um, I think it's, it's nice that you have Honolulu and you have Antwerp and you have Macau and then suddenly to go to... you know. Bellingham, Washington, or whatever. Just, I think that's funny and fun. So I, I try to do that. And I go to the little town. You know, sometimes I've never been to the little town. I go there just because. How do you pick that town? Aside from Owensboro? If it fits the plot. I mean, I'm, I'm looking for a certain kind of thing in the plot. Um, but on the other hand, if I know I'm going somewhere, for instance, I'm going to a conference in Billings, Montana next month. That will show up in a book. It, there's no doubt about it. Or I, I went to another conference a few months ago in Green Bay, Wisconsin. It'll probably show up in a book. In that case, I went to a uh, police academy there uh, to train to be a police officer and go to a homicide detectives conference. That whole experience went into a book um, that's coming out in September. So even though it's not set in Green Bay, that whole experience. That's the thing I do. I try to, although I have not um, robbed a museum, I have talked to FBI agents who investigate those kinds of robberies, or if I can meet someone who's committed a crime like that, I will do it. Uh, so I do a lot of research. For, I'm writing. A, I have a police procedural coming out in September, and I went to a homicide detectives training conference and a police officer you know, training academy so that I could convincingly write about police officers. And what I don't know, I call up a cop and ask them. I think you can tell when you read a book when they're making it up as they go. It just feels that way to me. So you've interviewed or talked to some criminals? Yes. Or yes, I'm related to a few of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've talked to criminals. I've talked to a lot of law enforcement people, a lot of cops, a lot of FBI agents, a lot of DEA agents. In fact, I've discovered all you got to do is buy drinks. I was at this um, homicide training conference. I was the only non-cop there. And although there were you know, a lot of guys there with guns and badges, even the ones who didn't had the walk, they had the stare. And then there was me, hi! You know, <laughs> I stood out instantly as not being a cop. And it was funny because there was a breakfast and it was like high school, like I was a new kid in town. I sit down at a table, they don't want me there. You know, they all clear away. I was like, I was at my own table and they're all talking. And then there was a, um, 
a seminar on a case. I won't bore you with the details of the case, but it was a case they were teaching because if you went into it with any of the common sense of a homicide detective, the basic rules and assumptions of solving a murder, you would have gotten it all wrong. So for this particular case, they had the original uh, uniformed officer who came on the scene, the detectives, the blood analyst, the medical examiner, there was an, F an FBI agent, uh, the prosecutor, and everyone involved with the case, so they could walk through all the ways if you'd done it the following common sense, what they call you know, common sense. But it was, a, it was a long seminar, it's in the dark. I paid to attend this thing, I'd be damned if I wasn't gonna ask questions. So I was asking all kinds of questions, and the, the guy, you know, it's in the dark, he doesn't know who's in the back asking these questions, and he was answering all the questions, and at the lunch break, I went up to him, and. I introduced myself as you know, the person who asked that question, I asked him some more, and he said, you know, those were terrific questions. What agency are you with? I said, I'm a senior investigator with the WGA. I'm not familiar with that agency. I said, uh, Writers Guild of America. You're a civilian? I said, yeah. He said, how'd you get in here? I said, the organizer there invited me. I write crime novels and TV shows. But what's interesting is they saw me talking to this guy and that he accepted me. So all of a sudden then people were very nice to me. And then that night in the bar, I bought drinks for like anybody who walked by and would pepper them with stories. So I think word went around, the guy's got an open wallet and he's an <laughs> idiot. You know? All you gotta do is tell him stories. You know? But you know, then it was great and I got all their cards <laughs> and now I call them up when I have questions about blood or questions about other stuff. I ended up writing a book about that particular case. So it was great, I told them I'm fictionalizing it and I asked if they could I use their names in the acknowledgments and stuff. So you actually see in that book a lot of officers, um, detectives and stuff mentioned. This case was great. I just took the case and moved it from Ohio to uh, Los Angeles. The fascinating case where a family was massacred. A, mo a woman, a single mother, her kids, the dog, and there were no bodies in the house. All there was was blood. They'd been dismembered and they had to figure out the case reading the blood evidence and everything, and it was just amazing. And it went against every assumption you have. You see a crime like this with this much violence, it's a crime of passion, it's someone they know. And uh, no, it was, a, it was a stranger. And obviously it's a crime that's been planned. It was happenstance. It was just a fascinating, fascinating case. But what's interesting about that book is, as you may have guessed from this conversation, I like to be funny, tell jokes, be lighthearted. You can't in a book like that. <laughs> you, know, you have to pull back. And so this book, it's called Lost Hills, it'll be out in September, it was a real challenge. Because every time I felt a joke coming, or, you know, I, there, that's not to say there isn't humor. There is humor, interpersonal humor between some of the characters, because they have lives outside of the police department, and that's where I put the humor. But there's no humor really involved in the investigation and dealing with it. So it's, and in the narrative voice, I had no personality. I, I, I pulled all the color out of the, out of the, description and stuff, and it's sort of more of a Michael Connolly, just the facts, ma'am kind of thing. Anything flowery that looked like writing, I took out. So it was a real challenge for me. But I wanted to show that I could write something that wasn't funny, that wasn't lighthearted, and um, that can be more serious and deal with real, not that I don't deal with real human emotions, but deal with grittier stuff and, and not necessarily be going for the smile or the laugh. You think you'd like to do more of that? Or? Oh, I have a contract to do more of that. Oh, okay. Yeah, they, they like the book a lot, so I owe them a sequel to that book as well. I haven't figured out what that one's going to be. But it's about a the youngest female um, homicide investigator on the L.A. County Sheriff's Department. So I'm also writing in a woman's voice. 
Um, I did that with the Monk novels. My 15 Monk novels written from Natalie's voice. So I'm going to be alternating for the next two years, at least, between the male character of true fiction, the, the writer who writes thrillers, gets caught up in them himself, and then the gritty police thing. So I'll have a real shift to sort of challenge me and, and uh, wash my palate. So I recently read uh, True Fiction, and uh -huh. um, it was a free, you know, Amazon right. book of the month or whatever free. And I was just wondering, like, how how you like how do you get chosen for that, and do you make money? If it's I, I write like entirely for charity. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, what's the purpose? I mean, for the author, what's it for the author? Well, Amazon's unique. They're not only the world's biggest bookstore; they're also a publisher, and they publish lots of books. They have a mystery publishing and romance and general fiction and nonfiction, and and uh, it's actually a it's very hard to get chosen to be an Amazon first. Yeah. And it's a great thrill because um, what Amazon first is, if, if you're an Amazon Prime member, correct me if I'm wrong, if you're an Amazon Prime member, you get offered six books every month. One you can get for free, Current, you know, brand new books. Yeah. One you can get for free, and the others you can buy for $1.99. So um, I can't give you too many de details when you well, get a contract fine. to sign that's a non-disclosure here. But here's like, no, no, what I can tell you is they, they, they give away quite a few books. But they do pay the author a fee to cover the amount of books they expect to give away. But that's not why it's so great is they put an enormous amount of promotion and marketing behind those six titles that they do. I don't know if you noticed, but for the first 15 days of March, consecutively, I was the number one best-selling book on Amazon. Mm -hmm. Theoretically, the number that, one yeah. best-selling book on Earth. It was, it was right. amazing. All those people who got the book for free they read it, if they like it, they're telling they their friends. So when the book officially wow. came out on April 1st, April Fool's Day was not lost on me, they picked that date for my book. It, it debuted at number one again, it came back to number one, and we sold a ton of books because all the word of mouth generated by the people who got the book for free. But also I had like, I don't know, 1,500 positive reviews on Amazon too, that helps. So the Amazon algorithm started recommending my book to people. So that's been great. And I already have thousands and thousands of pre-orders for my sequel. And people ordered it before it even had a description or a cover there. I think that came up, I was at Amazon first, March 1st. I think it wasn't until like April 2nd or 3rd, somewhere in there before they had the cover of my sequel and description there. But uh, so no, it's, a, it's, a, it's very hard to get to be an Amazon first and the publisher at Amazon, it's two separate, there's a wall, basically, between the publisher and the bookstore. So the, the publishing part of Amazon has no influence over what books get picked as an Amazon first. It's what the bookstore side thinks will really move and might appeal to their readers. So it's a great thrill. And then once the publisher knows it's been picked as an Amazon first, then they put a huge amount of marketing and promotion behind it. They sent a film crew out to LA and filmed a whole bunch of videos of me. A few of them have already um, shown up, but there are a bunch more that haven't yet. And in fact, I'm flying to New York May 31st to shoot more promos, so that's um, no, been wonderful. Did you like the book? Oh, yeah, I did. Mm -hmm. it was were, fun. were you offended by the sex in it? Uh, no. The reason I asked that, <laughs> uh, true fiction is about this thriller author, and uh, he writes these Jack Reacher-type thrillers. My, my friendly child writes those. and. Mm. I've always been amused because Lee Child is so unlike Jack Reacher. 
There's nothing like, I mean, if he had to do something to Jack Reacher, it would never happen. He looks like Roger Moore. I mean, the guy, so that's always amused me. And um, so I thought it'd be funny to write a book about a guy like me who writes books like Lee Child does, who ends up having to be in a Jack Reacher kind of situation. There's another side of that story. A friend of mine, Lawrence Block, I can't remember who the author was, you know, for, for the, I'll call him Irv Schmelzer, because I can't remember who the author was. But uh, Lawrence Block was out to dinner with Irv Schmelzer, and Irv Schmelzer was saying, if somebody has ripped me off, stolen this thing from me, I wish I could figure out who it was. And Lawrence Block said, but you're Irv Schmelzer. You write the Harvey Ding Dong mysteries, <laughs> which are incredible. Why don't you just approach it the way Harvey Ding Dong does? And Irv said, well, he's fictional. Yes, but you think just like him. You, if he can solve these crimes, so could you. No, 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 I couldn't. So I thought about that too. So I realized that even though Lee Child isn't Jack Reacher, and even though I'm not the action heroes I write about, I probably can think like them. And so I decided I'd try to, I'd write a book where a guy like me with no special skills, who makes up this stuff, finds himself in a situation just like you would write about, and he has to become his hero in order to survive. But I thought it would be a lot of fun if I contrasted what he's going through with excerpts from his books. So you have these, this scene where his hero, Clint Straker, is having amazing sex, you know, literally putting a woman in, his, in a coma. He's so good at it. My hero's in a motel room in, in Nevada with a lesbian eating Kentucky Fried Chicken watching Star Trek movies. My, my, hero, my hero has no sex in the book. None. But he's writing all this stuff. And that's the other thing. In all these movies, like Six Days of the Condor and The Bourne Identity, Whenever there's a hero on the run, he always meets a woman somewhere who initially is scared of him and doesn't want to be with him. But by the end of the movie, they're in love and having great sex and going off together. And also, the hero always has incredible abilities. I thought it would be fun, but completely against it. He meets a woman who has no interest in him. She's a dog walker. She's a dog walker and a folk singer. Yeah, yeah. A lesbian. In fact, I don't want to get with the end of the book, but at one point, you know, when things all over, you aren't really a lesbian, are you? And now that... Now that you've been through this, you were just trying to put me off until you realized how much you want me. Just, no, 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 I'm gay, and the last thing I want to do is ever sleep with you. In fact, I want to get as far away from you as I possibly can. Why would I want to be around you? You literally got me killed, you son of a bitch. You know, it's, I want to go against all the cliches of, of the genre. So it's funny, there's been movie interest in true fiction because it was so successful. And the first thing the producer said to me, no, she can't be gay. He's going to have the woman be I went, no, that's non-negotiable. <laughs> well, no, he has to. I mean, you, you have to have her say, I wasn't really gay, I was just putting you up. No, that's, you're missing the whole point. <laughs> that's not something I'm going to change. <laughs> so the, uh, the sequel, his book becomes a movie, and they've, they've set it in Hong Kong instead of Texas where it takes place, the book that he was promoting in the, in the in true fiction. So he flies off to Hong Kong to watch the filming. The movie's being directed by a guy named PJ, complete hack, um, <laughs> whose previous credit was TJ Hooker, the movie. And <laughs> it ends up getting involved in yet another adventure um, plucked from his own imagination. The Chinese hack into his computer because he's staying at this fancy hotel. And they, the moment you get on the internet, they look at your computer. And they see that what they think is, basically he has the outline for his next book there. They think he's a spy who's uncovered what he, they're actually doing. He's not, it's just. So, once again, 
so that's, a, that's the next book. I don't know what the third one is. If you have an idea, let me know. <laughs> Sitting here trying to figure it out. Did I answer your question? Thanks. <laughs> Any other questions? I'm thinking about character development. Like when you write a book, how do you, because there's so many possibilities, like how do you decide on their backstory with dialogue? All that, when I think about it, makes me panic. Panic? Yeah. What makes me panic is looking at my mortgage. And suddenly, <laughs> inspiration. Earlier, my daughter's tuition in college. Um, I actually don't approach it so much from character. Uh, I, I take it back. I always approach it from character. But the way I start is what kind of story can I come up with that would put these characters in an unusual situation? The best humor and the best drama comes from conflict. So you want to put characters in situations that will show them at their worst so that they have to become their best. So you take it, like the Monk books, you take a guy who's obsessive compulsive and you send him to a nudist colony, that's going to be funny. <laughs> you know, or the dead bodies in the city dump. You know, I, and he has to, I always try to think. In the sewer. The to, truck episode was awesome. Yeah, but you should, so you try to find things that, well, like I wrote an episode of Monk called Mr. Monk Can't See a Thing. He's blinded in the episode. <laughs> He's delighted. He's the guy. I went against all the cliches of the, of the TV episode where the hero is blinded. He's thrilled. Can I be deaf too? Yeah. <laughs> he loved being blind. He couldn't see it. Is this Ali disgusting? Yes. But I can't see it. This is wonderful. You know, he just. <laughs> and there was some danger that we thought that blind people would be take offense at the episode. They loved it. They loved it. Um, I got great letters from blind people saying how much they enjoyed the episode. It was great. Um, I always look for the conflict. So I, when I started with the idea of, say, with true fiction, an author who has to become the hero he writes about, okay, what situations could I put him in that would be interesting? I know there has to be a woman in there. Who could I pair him with? Well, every time an author goes to a city, he's given a book escort. His job it is to drive them around and set up their meeting, basically so you don't have to worry about how to get from point A to point B and you know, take care of you. you know, what if some poor book escort got sucked into this thing? You know, but they always sleep together in these movies and books. How can I make it absolutely positively impossible for them to sleep together? She'll be a lesbian. So how's she going to feel about him? And, you know, so I just, I just started going through there, trying to think of complications. And then I want them to be real people. So I asked myself, who is she? What does she want out of life? How is being with Ian screwing that up? How is this going to change her in a different way and actually make her discover things about herself she didn't know? How is this relationship with this lesbian going to change the way Ian views women and his own abhorrent behavior towards them? You know, and just how will he, how will each one of these characters be changed by this? And I don't think I'm really, but even though they don't fall in love with each other in a romantic sense, by the end of the book, despite all the bitching and whining they do, they deeply care about each other. I mean, she's in the second book. I mean, it's, I don't want to reveal how she ends up in the second book, but she's in it. and. So they're adversarial. Same with with the books I write with Janet. One character is an FBI agent. The other one's the thief. She's been trying to put away her entire career. She gets him into prison and he escapes. She hunts him down and finds out that the FBI has let him free. So that she so here's a guy she cannot stand, who she's been chasing for years, who she actually realizes she's in love with. How can I be in love with someone who represents everything I hate? You know, yet why can't I stop fantasizing about it? <laughs> it's, uh, so I, I like to play with conflict. Because if you think, if you come up with a character who has no 
rough edges and don't put them in a situation that shows those rough edges, it's boring. But I'm not one of those guys who writes lengthy character biographies of the, of the people I write about. I, I kind of discover them too as I go along. Like I'll, I'll write a single, oh, I didn't know that about him or her. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Though also, sometimes I'll be writing, and go, oh, I didn't know that about him. Write a few more pages, and I don't like that about him. And I go back and I delete that, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, th there's a, um, two kinds of writers. What they call seat of the pantsers, people who make it up as they go along, and outliners. I'm an outliner. I don't outline every detail, but I pretty much know where I'm going. I know in a mystery novel who done it and what the key clues are. Doesn't mean I don't deviate constantly, but at least I know where I'm going. I have a very hard time with most authors who make it up as they go along because I feel like I can tell when I'm reading the book. Oh, he's treading water here. Ah, he just found the story. You know, and I can see the moment when they realize, and they're too lazy to go back and cut out all the crap where they were just killing pages and killing time. Drives me crazy. Could you give examples? Yes, Robert, kidding. no I can't. Yeah. <laughs> I can't. Robert B. Parker. The last 10 books that he wrote, he was making it up as he goes along, and, and you could tell, something would happen. Next chapter he would tell his girlfriend Susan about what just happened. <laughs> and then he started, I mean, it just, it, he, and then he'd investigate in a dead end, and it really was a dead end they could have cut because it was boring, and he's just trying to find his way, because he doesn't actually know who done it or how Spencer's going to figure it out, and he's too big an author and too lazy to go back and fix it. On the other hand, Lee Child makes it up as he goes along, and I can't tell with him. He's got some sort of direct connection to his muse, whatever, and he has no idea what he's going to write about. Every, every year, September 1st, he starts writing his next book. And he just starts typing. He doesn't give it any thought, no outline, and he delivers it in April. <laughs> every year. And so far, Works it's like worked. Work, huh? He even, and this would have made me have performance anxiety, he even let a British literary professor come to New York and be with him in the room charting his progress. He was in the room September 1st, Lee Child would write a page, print it out, show it to the guy, and just, and the guy wrote a novel called The Making of Make Me, all about how wow. Lee Child wrote Make Me, but I would just, I'd have a hard time writing with, you know, a guy behind me, especially when I make it up as I go along, what if this is the one book where it doesn't work? <laughs> <clears throat> Do you write every day? No. I have never missed a deadline, even when I had two broken arms. I'll have some days where I'll be lucky if I can write a paragraph. All other days I'll write 30 pages. I just, I don't punish myself. I, I know I will always deliver a book on time. I know I'll always make the, out, the deadline. Um, so I don't give myself page counts per day. Plus I know things will get in the way. Like I have this book due in September, but I had this movie to write, which I had a real quick deadline. I had to turn in uh, a few days ago. And then there'll be a, I haven't got my notes from the network yet, but there'll be a quick turnaround on that too. I have a publishing company, things come up with that. I have to read manuscripts and give notes and, and trips like this come up. And so I write when I can. I write on airplanes, I write in the bathroom, I write everywhere. I do some of my best writing in the bathroom. There's no computer. No, I'll tell you a secret, even though this is being recorded and the whole world can listen to it on a podcast, my family thinks that I have horrible digestive problems. <laughs> 
my God, Dad's in the bathroom forever. It's like, it's the one place no one can bother me. You know, I, they say, oh, I don't know what I ate, and I'm just sitting here, you know, writing. <laughs> it's a piece. <clears throat> and it gets me away from the computer, you know, and so you easily get distracted. Read, yeah. Yeah. read a lot of other people's stuff, too. I, yes and no. I, I used to read a lot of other people's stuff. Then I started a publishing company. I have found I'm reading so much other stuff I don't want to read. You know, a lot of submissions. In fact, we just stopped taking submissions so I can start reading books again. We have plenty of books lined up. I don't, we don't need to buy any more to, to publish. Um, that's something I don't recommend. Don't start a publishing company. Not if you want to make any money. Our authors are making a lot of money. Our authors are doing great. I don't know when that starts to trickle down to the publisher. Because uh. um, you know, it takes so much money to launch a publishing company. So we're at a place where the publishing company is self-sustaining. It's taking care of itself. I don't have to put any more money into it. But it's not a place where I can take any money out. Um, and my accountants laugh at me. Lee, you've only been in business for four years. The fact that you've been cash flow positive for the last two years is a great thing. Yeah, but how come everyone's making money but me? <laughs> Do I get to make money? <clears throat> so I've been doing it for both sides, publishing and uh, being published. Any other questions? No? Well, I'm so glad you were all able to make it. <laughs>